The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. Extra amazing because we're back. Yeah. Finally back, Crystal. Indeed, we do. Yeah. Nice to be back in the chair. We did miss you guys. Although yeah. it's a little bit nice to have a week off. Yeah, it was Reset, nice. Reset, yeah. refresh. If I say anything regroup. dumb, blame it on jet lag. <laughs> I'm All still right. blaming long COVID yeah. for any brain fog <laughs> that I have from here on out. Right. Um, before we get to what's in the show, we do have a couple of announcements off the top that I do not want to forget. Number one, live show. Let's go ahead and put that up there on the screen. We're getting closer and closer to that date, September 16th, 7th. 30 p.m. Eastern Time in Atlanta, Georgia. It's going to be the first be of many. It's going to be around corner, I know. It's, I'm, I'm really excited. We're already, you know, planning, making sure it's going to be a great tour. This is going to be the first of many. But as we've said, uh, if you can help us out by buying tickets to this first one, help show the industry venues, et cetera, that we can indeed sell tickets here at Breaking Points. The link is down there in the description. Second, for our premium subscribers, for those of you who have already done so, we deeply appreciate it. We've got that promotion going on right now. If you're a monthly subscriber, uh, if you can help the show out for financial planning purposes. If we can realize some cash at this moment, you can upgrade from monthly to yearly for a 20% discount. The link is going to be at the very top of your premium newsletter. For all of those who have done so so far, it is so deeply appreciated. And if you can continue to do so, if you're one of those people, if you can afford it, it deeply, deeply is important to the show. And we're just so grateful to all of you. Absolutely. And a lot of you have already upgraded, which I want to thank you for. The response to the promotion has been really strong. And again, it just really 
helps us out for this year as we're planning for the midterms and mm-hmm. we're pl- thinking about bringing another person on. It just really helps us to plan all of that. Okay, in the show today, um, we do have some new developments out of Uvalde and actually some new indications that politically this is hurting Texas Republicans in terms of their failed response to the massacre of those students in that town. Um, we also have a sort of deal between Russia and Ukraine on shipping out grain through the Black Sea, but then Russia immediately started shelling the port city that the grain is supposed to go out of. So we've got all of those updates for you. Um, Also, Democrats finally making some uh, intelligent political moves in the House and the Senate, putting Republicans on the spot with some tough votes on gay marriage and contraception access and also some related to abortion. So we'll give you those breakdowns. New numbers about exactly who is to blame Hmm. for the chaos at American airports. And by the way, it is exactly what you think. It is the (laughs) airline's fault. In spite of all of their attempts to blame shift, it is their fault. And of course, Pete Buttigieg in charge of the Department of Transportation doing nothing and also sort of really gaslighting the public about exactly how on top of the issue he has been. Also, guys, uh, stock alert here uh, for those of you who are, you know, making moves in the market. Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, making some big moves ahead of some potential legislation with regards to chips. So we will tell you about that. Um, but Sagar, we did want to start with the very latest out of the investigation in Uvalde. Yeah, we got to stay on top of this story. And, and when we were looking over the things of the last week, yes, I know Biden has COVID. He seems fine. You know, wish him the best. But this is always going to be one that we want to try and stick to as much as possible because the reports out of it, everyone seems to be more unbelievable than the next. And we finally have some even more horrific details. Put this up there on the screen. Now, the latest report out of the state of Texas is an 80-page report. It's basically been obtained by multiple media outlets. This was relevant by authorities, the Texas State Senate and others. Tells us that nearly 400 400 law enforcement officials were outside and had rushed to the mass shooting before they had actually gone in, breached the door. This picture that those who are watching can just see in front of you is literally of a officer standing in front of other officers with his hands up like this, preventing them from going into the hallway to where the shooter was located. And throughout that report, they blame, quote, systemic failures. Yeah. Uh, you think, (laughs) for exactly what exactly happened here. I think it's horrific because they really just point to the fact that, as we'd already learned, if these guys had done their jobs, the shooter could have been neutralized within three minutes of the shooting. Three minutes. And we already know, based upon video evidence, that there were not only officers on the scene, there were officers, they didn't just have handguns, they had high-powered rifles, like they had what they needed. There even was an officer there who had a riot shield or some sort of ballistic shield that could have been used. As we also know, the door itself was unlocked and they spent 20 to 30 officers minutes, you know, kind of faking around, trying to, quote, find the key, even though they didn't need a key. Nobody even asked for a key in the initial 30 minutes of what was happening. It ultimately really took a a tremendous uh, act of insubordination on behalf of some Border Patrol officers who were like, you know what, forget it. We're just going to go in. Yeah. And, and, And all of that. So all of that is detailed here in the report. But the top line 400, 400, that's almost as many kids who are in the damn school uh, um, who are on scene. Completely insane. Yeah. And I think what it shows is 
you know, we've seen so many shifting narratives. And that is actually another piece that came out, some talking yeah, points that right. they had oh, about yeah. the narrative that they wanted to push. Yep. That you heard politicians from Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, on down, pushing immediately after this happened, before we knew any of the facts of just mm -hmm. how failed this response ultimately was. Then, once that narrative starts to fall apart, then there was an attempt to really put 100% of the blame on Pete Arredondo, who is, of course, in charge of the Uvalde School District Police Force. Now, listen, that dude deserves a lot of blame. But when you've got 400 law enforcement officers, and we're talking about 150 Border Patrol agents, 91 state police officials, and then you have the local PD, you had U.S. federal marshals Thanks. on the scene, every level of law enforcement and they all just stand around for an hour and 20 minutes and do nothing. It really does show you how there is something that has gone really awry in terms of law enforcement. I mean, we were talking before the show about this Indiana shopping mall yes, where there right. was uh, a shooting and an ordinary civilian with a gun was able to take this guy out like this. And you mm -hmm. you just realize that, you know, something we said from the beginning is you honestly would have had a much more effective, much better, and much less deadly response if just random parents had been yeah. given guns and weapons and been able to go in because this is an absolute atrocity. The fact that it was every single level, no, no, no. The blame is not on one person. It is on every single person who stood there and did absolutely nothing and was happy to shift the blame, happy to shift the responsibility, happy to pretend that it wasn't their problem. Yeah, this is uh, the 22-year-old in Indiana, Elisha Dickin. I hope I'm saying that right, Elisha, if you're out there. Definitely a hero. And you know, and actually, just exactly what you're talking about. This is a proficient uh, guy in firearms. He had his gun on him. He actually had, you know, found cover. He was asking people to move behind him as he moved forward, took the shooter out in a matter of minutes. And you have 400 here. I also do think that, unfortunately, some of the blame, the most blame has gone towards Pete Arredondo. And look, it should, and we're about to get to even more of why that guy should be fired and some more cover-ups that continue. However, there were federal marshals who were on the scene. I actually got some messages from people who watch the show who are in the federal marshals service, U.S. marshals, and they're like, this is an outrageous. They're like, these people are a disgrace to our So they even understand, he was telling me that the way that they train is specifically for situations like this. And they're like, yeah, you know, anybody can expect some small yokel PD not to do the best. But you have guys there with ex millions of dollars in training, you know, for, well, supposedly for situations like this and who don't do anything. I also want to spend some time on that narrative thing that you brought up because yeah. it's very important, which is similar. There were some documents that came out the city of Uvalde itself, days after the shooting occurs and they're meeting with the Texas Department of Public Safety, they're not going over what went wrong. They are lambasting him for criticizing their response wow. and have created an official government document that was titled Narrative. And it has a different version of events from what may be described as the facts. Right. In which they right. say, oh, well, he was barricaded. And that, you know, according to that, well, do we have a different to training regimen, complete BS. They're, they literally trained for this months before in the school where this actually happened. They knew, and it even says, written in the documents, you may be the first person there and you may have to put your life on the line in order to immediately stop. Everybody knows active shooter situation, that the bleeding stops whenever the shooting stops. And also, for those who were coming to these cops' defense, they're like, well, you know, the majority of the shooting took place in the first three minutes. Okay, let's say you save one, maybe two lives, immediately, just right. in terms of those shots. 
worth it. It's not worth it. And then even more so, remember, there are people who bled out on that floor. I mean, everybody who, you know, it's called the golden hour in combat for a reason, because you need an hour. Or within that hour, you have a, I think it's dramatically, exponentially higher likelihood of surviving, like, even horrific gunshot wounds. So who knows how many kids uh, may have been in critical condition versus who have been bled out on the floor. Another another piece that came out in this report is the fact that they did know that 911 calls were coming from inside the room. And there was a lot of question of that initially of like, oh, maybe they didn't know that no, there were still kids in there and that those kids were still alive. No, this this has now been revealed. They knew, they knew that there were kids in there that were calling 911, begging for help as they, you know, sort of like bumbled around and pretended like they were finding a key. When you've got, I mean, you had even, the door wasn't even locked, number one. They didn't even try the knob. That's number one. Number two, even if the door was locked, they had everything they needed within three minutes to forcefully breach that door, even if it was locked. So it's just, it's just mind-boggling. It really is not mind-boggling to watch 400 law enforcement officials from every single level, all in their gear, all G.I. joe up, standing around and hoping that someone else is gonna deal with the issue. And we also have the video that we've seen, let's go, oh, that we had been heard described to us. Go ahead and put this up there on the screen. You have Officer Ruben Ruiz here. He is actually a Uvalde PD officer. You can see him, for those who are watching, he's coming forward with his gun in his hand and he's saying, she's been shot, she's been shot. You can see officers there actually putting their hands around him, kind of pushing him back. Look, there's been some judgment of the guy, like he didn't fight hard enough. We, that's all Monday morning quarterbacking. He was clearly in shock and trauma. And actually, we talked previously about an officer who was on his phone. He was actually the guy who was on his phone because he was checking to make sure he was getting text messages and calls from her, how she was getting shot inside of yeah, the classroom. He, he knew she, ultimately she was shot. Perished. Yeah, I mean, she, she, he says there in the video, she said she's been shot. And they still pull, pull him back. So they know that people are getting shot inside. We know about the 911 calls. We know that the you know her own husband is outside of the room being restrained by his colleagues and pushed back kind of like that. I mean, it's just a horrific situation. As we said also in terms of the reporting uh, and, and Pete Arredondo, let's, let's throw this up there. So this school board has now delayed, their, they were supposed to fire him four days ago, Pete Arredondo. He was placed on leave, obviously, and uh, from the city council as well. Well, they canceled the meeting which was on Saturday, where they were scheduled to, quote, consider firing the police chief. And they're blaming it on process. Look, they had the vote ready to go. Then they canceled the meeting ahead of where this guy's been fired. It's been over a month since the shooting even happened. So in what world is this, not even justice, accountability? Yeah. Most people have made peace with the fact that these guys will never be able to be criminally prosecuted, even though I think many of them should be, specifically Pete Arredondo. At the very least, we want him to be fired. We want him to have his job loss. And yet, they have they can't even come around to firing him. I, I mean, what It's the, crazy. What the residents are yeah. saying, and I think what any decent human being in the country would say yeah. is that not a single one of these people deserves to have a badge. Yeah, I mean, that's right. All 400 of them that stood by, men and women in their gear that stood by and did nothing, not a one of them deserves to, you know, pretend to uh, protect and serve. So the fact that even this this one dude who, you know, really was supposedly in charge and was the one who came up with this idea of, oh, it's, you know, it's not, a, it's, it's a barricaded subject, so we need to just do nothing for an hour and 20 mm-hmm. minutes, and who even when they went in was still reluctant, was like, ah, I guess you guys can go in, but um, seemed to not really think it was the right thing to do. 
at the very least, there could be some accountability for this guy. And I think the failed political response, just as the failed law enforcement response was at every single level from local to state to federal, the failed political response also goes across every single level. Clearly, the local good old boys network is yes. closing ranks around these guys and trying to protect them in every way they can. And they have from the beginning. I mean, blocking media, harassing the one yeah. the mom who tried to go, who did actually ultimately go <laughs> in after being handcuffed and get her children and was willing to speak out to the press. But then you also see um, from the governor on down, everybody sort of trying to close ranks, trying to block any sort of public release of information and zero pressure for accountability at any level of government. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about Russia. I've been monitoring the situation there closely. Some mixed news out of the conflict at the geostrategic level. Let's put this up there on the screen. So at first, it seemed like we actually had some decent news that Ukraine and Russia had actually signed a deal which was going to allow Kyiv to resume exports of grain through the Black Sea. People should remember that Ukraine is one of the largest exporters of grain in the world and that that shortage was leading to a potential and actually even realized food crisis in much of the developing world after Africa, many others that import a ton of Ukrainian uh, grain. Ukraine long known as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union during that time. So the Russian Navy had been blockading those grain exports and they agreed to this deal where they said that they would be allowing Kyiv in order to export that grain. What's interesting also about the deal is it highlights the changing nature of diplomacy in the year 2022. In the past, the United States would have been party to this deal, or not not even party, would have been the guarantor yeah. of this deal. But because of our policy, which is don't ever meet any Russians, don't talk to the Russians, I don't even think that the president has spoken with Putin since after the invasion. There's yeah, been no, no high-level diplomatic contacts. I think Blinken had maybe one phone call with his counterpart over there. Well, Turkish President Erdogan has actually stepped up to the plate. He's been holding a ton of talks between the two governments, and he is really the one who brokered the deal. Obviously, Obviously, that's noteworthy because Turkey is in NATO, and Turkey and Erdogan specifically probably have the most heterodox of foreign policies within the NATO alliance, and especially given their they have a complicated relationship with Russia. But as of recently, they've been talking with them, given what was happening in Syria. So they have a lot of high-level military contacts specifically. And actually, the Russian top general is one of the people who was there whenever this deal was signed. The deal it was set to last for 120 days, and was actually it was going to be monitored out of Istanbul, but also staffed by the UN. Turkey, Russia, and Ukrainian officials. Now, the issue, though, is, as was highlighted there, is that, well, this deal is only a deal if there's not a military response. And unfortunately, the Russians doing what the Russians do, let's go and put this up there on the screen, almost immediately went and hit the Black Sea port despite the grain deal. Russian missiles, hours after the deal was signed to resume Ukrainian grain exports, actually came in and uh, fired two caliber cruise missiles, which hit port infrastructure and Ukrainian air defenses, which at least brought down two of the others. That's according to the Ukrainian military command. But it is noteworthy because they, while they did not strike grain storage facilities, which is what the Turks were highlighting, they did strike port infrastructure. And it does just generally comport with the Russian strategy, not only to starve the Ukrainians out food-wise, but really in order to destroy their economy as much as possible because this is such a critical export. So it is a mixed bag in the, in the diplomatic, um, in the diplomatic 
future for this conflict, and it doesn't inspire confidence. You know, something you and I have been saying here is like, hey, we need to have some diplomacy, but it's also not hard, it's not easy to have diplomacy if yeah. the people who are party are gonna be breaking deals like this and yeah. just immediately violating it. I mean, the Ukrainians said this is a spit in our face. I think that's uh, It's hard, you know, it's hard to argue with that. Right. It's really hard to argue with that. I mean, yeah. it definitely puts, I mean, at, at the best, it puts the deal very much in doubt. Yeah. And it really is a shame. There, There's no enforcement mechanism in this deal. It's basically, what you know. What enforcement can you do? What can you do? Right. right. It's, a, it's a handshake kind of a deal. And immediately after the deal is supposedly inked and agreed to, Russia goes and does this and completely mm. undermines it. And it, it's really sad, not just because, obviously, uh, the Horn of Africa in particular has been extraordinarily hard hit, not only by this war, um, also by uh, failed crops uh, in, in part due to the climate crisis. So they were in a very precarious situation to start with. Um, and also because of financial situation around the world and inflation, it's cost more to import grain anyway. So this has been uh, really devastating for poor nations around the world. And so the fact that this was immediately undermined is truly a disaster. And the other piece here, too, was um, Erdogan was actually hopeful that maybe this could be the first step right. back to the negotiating table. Because you'll recall, back when there were ongoing meetings and talks about a potential negotiated settlement and diplomatic end to um, this war, those were being facilitated by Turkey. So, um, you know, Erdogan had said he hoped it would be the first step towards bringing the war to an end. This joint step we're taking with Ukraine and Russia will hopefully revive the path to peace. Obviously, that has not worked out. Yeah, it has. I mean, I've said this, and this is the only way to look at it, which is that as they've shown in political science, the more attempts that you try to have a ceasefire, most ceasefires fail, but eventually some of them work. So the mere fact that you're trying to sign a ceasefire can, again, can be something that indicates some sort of forward direction. But I do think the Erdogan government has done actually a pretty decent job of at least continuing the talks. It took two months just to get here. Maybe it'll take two months to get to one that actually sticks. Yeah. And then maybe it'll take a year in order to get to one that is further along the diplomatic process. But we should also not forget, you know, the war is still not going well for the Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country. They haven't suffered any major losses since we last did our show, but the continuing bombardment and artillery is happening on the eastern front, and they have not made any forward progress despite massive shipments of arms from the West. Another thing we wanted to highlight and update, let's put this up there, Kaliningrad. So we talked previously about how the Russians have an exclave outside of their country, Kaliningrad. This is an old Soviet Union type thing. It guarantees them access to the Baltic Sea. Well, there had previously been a ban by Lithuania, a NATO country, in terms of rail transport of sanctioned goods in and out of the Russian area of Kaliningrad. How this is governed is very difficult, but the Lithuanians claimed, again, claimed that based upon EU sanctions that they could not allow the transport of these goods, the Russians were like, hey, you're preventing the free movement of goods in between our country. And this was never something that was supposed to even be on the table in the past. Lots of accusations flying between both Russia accusing and basically threatening saber rattling against the Lithuanians, which of course we have an interest in because Lithuania is in NATO and they have Article 5 protection anyway. So they have actually resumed the lifting of rail restrictions for the Russian exclave. I think that this matters because it generally is a soft folding on many sanctions grounds mm. on the West. So the hardest hitting sanctions against the Russians, it's not just the financial ones, it was against their oil and gas infrastructure. And 
I talked a lot about before we left the natural gas, which we're about to update everybody on. But the Canadians ultimately did fold and they're like, all right, you can have your gas turbines because, and even the US government was like, okay, ship them the damn gas turbines yeah. because we don't want the Germans to be cut off from the Nord Stream pipeline. So we're still pursuing this strange dual track policy where we're not actually sticking to the harshest sanctions. Like we'll stick to them ish, but then when the Russians are really threatened and they start ratcheting it up and it, the the stakes of that become clear, then we fold. So we're doing this strange thing where, you know, Russians are moving their stuff between Kaliningrad, they're getting their gas turbines, they're printing hundreds of billions of euros a day with gas and with oil. They're richer than they've ever been before. The Moscow government, not the people in, in Russia. And at the same time, we, so we're not hurting the Russian war machine, but then we're also not moving towards any sort of diplomatic solution. It's, just, right. it's, it's like the idiocy of the policy. Well, I think it's a recognition that the policy has failed. Yeah. And so right. they can't publicly right. back away from it because they've sold their population, certainly here in the U.S., people are sold on like, you're going to pay high gas prices, but we're going to stick it to the yes. Russians. This has not worked out at all, but they're too cowardly to actually fess up to that and say, we got to try a different route. Mm -hmm. And they certainly are not interested in pushing for a diplomatic um, solution, understanding that that may be unattainable right now, even if we were putting our force behind it. But the fact of the matter is we're not putting our force behind it. And so I think these little movements are a sort of subtle acknowledgement that the overall sanctions policy has been a failure. It has not bled the Russian war machine. It mm -hmm. has not really hurt Putin ultimately. And I'm glad to see them back down here in Kaliningrad because this was a very— um, even though it may seem like a small thing, this was a major escalatory talking point yeah. for Putin and for Russia that he was, you know, in state media there were really taking to their population as see how far the West is going, see how much they hate us, see how far they'll go beyond what even that they've said. And the EU ultimately decided that the transit ban uh, only affects road, not rail. Mm. And that's what allowed the uh, transit to be opened back up by rail to this area. So, um, you know, when we covered this originally, we said this is a very dangerous situation. I think that is still, was still very much the case. And it appears the Europeans looked at it and said, you know what, the juice is not worth the squeeze, it's not worth the risk here. But that's whatsoever. why it's so, such a foolish policy. It's like, yeah. oh, only by road, 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 not by rail. Listen, either do it or don't. Because if you're, if you're not going to, some half-assed policy, then what's the point? I mean, they're being half punished, but not really. They can still get their goods. They can still export whatever they want. They can still pump their gas. But oh, God forbid, you know, some Russian guy plays in Wimbledon. Yeah, like, uh, what? I know. What are we doing that's, here? Those are the ones that make yeah. me really crazy. You I put, mean, that's just like complete xenophobia. <laughs> with, uh, it's complete theater and uh, xenophobic theater that everyone has just broadly accepted. It's yeah. gross. It's very foolish. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. A lot of big stories to get to. First of all, are we in a recession already? Mm. Are we heading towards Don't a recession? The White House, the White House very <laughs> much out there trying to parse and come up with their own alternative facts around the state of the economy. Um, also, as we have been previewing, the Fed set to raise interest rates. The expectation is they will probably lift at 75 basis points or 0.75%. There is an outside chance that they'll lift it one percentage point. Either way, this is an extraordinary move um, with major implications for you and for the economy. So we will break all of that down. Also, some new questions about whether the Murdochs and Fox News are turning on Trump. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Big debate out there. So we'll read some of the tea leaves, see what they're up to. Uh, also, yesterday, 
We brought you the news that Nord Stream 1, that critical pipeline bringing natural gas in particular to Germany, had been turned back on. Now we're getting numbers about how much capacity. Yeah. It may be on, but not really. Not yeah. at full blast. Yeah. So, uh, and also a new deal just breaking this morning uh, among EU member nations to curb their natural gas consumption. So we'll break all of that down for you. Also another insider trading scandal, this time with a former congressman. And we have, uh, this is kind of a stunning development. Uh, friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, along with a lot of other figures. Tulsi Gabbard ran Paul Lula, the former president of Brazil, put on a blacklist uh, in Ukraine yeah. of people who are, quote-unquote, spreading Russian propaganda. It's, it's, it, it's completely It's yeah. completely insane. And it's part of a, a really disturbing trend in Ukraine of cracking down on mm -hmm. any dissent. So bring that to you. We also have a first-time guest on the show, Jonathan Swan, who had a big scoop about the plans being laid for a second Trump term. Um, but before we jump into the latest news about potential recession, we do have a couple of announcements. Number one, you guys already know what I'm going to say. Live show. We got to sell those tickets, people. Let's put this up there on the screen. September 16th in Atlanta. Obviously, we're going to have a lot to discuss. It's going to be election season, part of a bigger midterm tour that Crystal and I are doing with many other friends of the show who will be making appearances across the country. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously going to drag Marshall yes, and Kyle down Of there. course, of course. But <laughs> we're still we're still looking at some others. All right, it's going to be great. And listen, uh, this tour, it's this is the first show. As we've said, we have to show people that we can sell these tickets. We'd really, really like to sell this one out as soon as possible just to prove it to many other venues who we're speaking with exactly how many tickets we can sell booking etc i don't want to bring people too far in but that is why we've been pushing it so hard so we deeply appreciate it number two also as a reminder our premium monthly subscribers just if you could help out the show for financial planning purposes we are offering a discount to upgrade to yearly it is deeply appreciative on our parts it really helps as we said financial planning as we're looking to hire and expand further out into the show just given everything with the economic situation we thought it was best. And as such, we're offering those existing monthly subscribers the ability to upgrade. There is a link in your premium newsletter at the very, very top for you to do so. For all, for the many of you who have already done so, we appreciate it so much. And they've been sending in such nice messages like, of course I can. If you can't afford it, no worries whatsoever. We totally get it, you know, given what's happening with the economy right now. And so that's probably a good segue actually yeah. to what we should discuss, which is the Biden administration is facing down the barrel of a quote, technical recession. And whenever you do such a thing, what do you do? You go, you know what? Let's just change the definition of recession. So that's what's happening. Let's put this up there on the screen. So Thursday, we are likely to see a GDP report that shows a second consecutive quarter of negative growth. Now, technically, that should be a recession. However, the Council of Economic Advisors, which is appointed by the White House and which provides supposed to be nonpartisan economic analysis to the executive branch, is now changing the definition ahead of that Thursday GDP report. And so Jackie Henrich, who is over at Fox News, points out very clearly that the White House release says, what is a recession? Oh, please tell us. While some maintain two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Instead, both official determinations of recession economists' assessments are based on a holistic look at the data. Based on these data, it is unlikely the decline in the GDP of the first quarter of this year, even if followed by another GDP decline in the second quarter, indicates a recession. 
Well, there's a little bit of a problem with that. Let's go ahead and throw this next one, uh, or let's go ahead actually and listen on CNN whenever the White House economic advisor is pressed for changing this definition. And then we'll also show you some historical stuff which outright proves that the White House is lying. Let's take a listen to the White House spin first. What will be comments from some saying, two quarters of negative growth in a row, that's a recession. Right, and certainly the, in terms of the technical definition, it's not a recession. The technical definition considers a much broader spectrum uh, of data points. But in practical terms, what matters to the American people is whether they have a little economic breathing room, they have more job opportunities, their wages are going up. That has been Joe Biden's focus since coming into office. Yeah, uh, so are any of those things happening? No, so it also is a recession. But as Michael Strain points out, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Of the past 10 times that the U.S. economy has experienced two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, how many times was a recession officially declared? 10. So 10 out of 10 times. Now look, I get that it's not great PR optics, but redefining definitions of recession is frankly, in my opinion, worse than saying, yeah, we're living through hard times. I'm doing everything I possibly can about it. I will give one counter defense, Crystal. I spoke with Joe Weisenthal, friend over at Bloomberg. Here's what he says. Every single post-World War II recession saw unemployment rise before it or during it. However, in the first half of 2022, we saw unemployment fall from 3.9 to 3.6. So that is the defense of like the White House position. And, you know, Joe is not spinning. He's just giving you the the facts of why this one is wonky. Fine, say that. Hey, this is a wonky recession. But redefining the term recession and really gaslighting people, also using criteria which clearly are negatively trending Mm -hmm. for all of the American people, on top of the fact that everybody knows that nothing is working in American society, you're not fooling everybody. It's such an insane move on their part. Nominal wages may be rising, but of course, when you count inflation, everyone is getting a pay cut basically every week. So the idea that wages are going up, I mean, again, that's, it's very gaslighting. And and the bottom line is this isn't going to (laughs) work. People know what's going on in their own lives. I just was looking, you know, uh, earlier this month, there was a poll that found 58% of Americans already think the country is in a recession. So they don't need your like technical parsing Mm -hmm. definition to figure out what's going on in the economy. And I think politicians really err when they try to persuade people that think Things are going better than what they actually think and feel. I think Obama made this same mistake in his second term when he tried to sell the recovery as something that was really robust and really amazing when people were really still struggling. And it made him vulnerable to defeat if the Republicans had run anyone other than like a cartoon character, like Monopoly, (laughs) plutocratic villain. Um, And so I think the Biden team throughout this period has consistently made this same mistake of trying to sell the uh, unemployment numbers, trying to sell the nominal wage gains as this incredible recovery and the media is just spinning and the economy is actually great, you just don't understand it. When people know that things are really tight for them, they know that, you know, the job market already, there's signs of significant deterioration that we're going to get to in a moment. You have new unemployment claims coming in higher. So you see that starting to ebb. Well, you already see uh, massive impacts in terms of the housing market. So I was actually just reading an article about how um, upper middle class Americans, not that they're the most uh, compelling or most sympathetic group, but they're really being squeezed right now, too, because they didn't benefit from the pandemic program 
programs, which were means tested. And now their stock portfolios, which made them feel like they had a lot of money, have all crashed. Their housing values, which also made them feel yep. like they had a lot of money, are starting to crash. They recognize they can't sell into this market. If they did and tried to move somewhere else, they couldn't afford a new home. So you have people increasingly in their lives feeling like things are tight, like they can't afford what they could at the grocery store, like they're having to cut back. And the White House is like, technical parsing of whether or not it's a recession is not going to change their minds on that. Yeah. And Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, sticking to the same spin. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. She says the economy shows no signs of recession. And once again, this is BS because Janet Yellen should know better. Her background is as a technical economist. Her and her husband are both, I think her husband is a Nobel Prize in the field of economics. They're the ones who came up with this definition. And yet now they are saying, you don't see any of the signs. A recession is a broad-based contraction that affects many sectors of the economy. We just don't have that. In the very same breath, she acknowledges the impact of high inflation numbers on Americans, specifically gas, food, and other economic problems. And this, the issue that I really have on this is that they are all over the place. Remember, it was not even three months ago, Joe Biden was standing in front of the port of Los Angeles telling us that we lived in the strongest econo economic recovery since World War II. Look, again, they're using technical definite, like, oh, economy's gone, or, uh, unemployment's 3.9. What does the unemployment rate matter if you cannot if you cannot literally afford anything in your daily life? If you can't buy a car? I mean, even just recently, I was looking again, especially with this Fed rate hike, which yeah. is like we're about to talk about it. It's about to come down the pipe. That's going to raise the average car price to like $800 a month. That's not even including not even including insurance and all the other attendant costs. And that's if you can buy a car. So the used car market is on fire. People are having real trouble uh, taking out loans. Their credit card usage is sky high. We're seeing all sorts of insanity happen in the mortgage markets, in the loan markets. That's on top of, what, have anyone been to a grocery store lately? It's crazy. Like you look at a price, you know, price of a pound of ground beef is going for like eight and nine dollars. And you know, we've even seen a reduction. And this is again what really bothers me. People are making really material cutbacks in their daily lives. I told you about the booming YouTube channel about how to cook like a depression housewife. Like, <laughs> this is not good for America. Yeah, they literally have these old videos. I have a lot of, of friends who could fill out that YouTube content. They're very effective at this. There's this grandma who has now died, but in 2013 did like a whole series with her grandson. She's like, here's how we used to cook in the depression. And now her views are going like booming right now because people are like, oh, how do I make like a single Costco rotisserie chicken last for a week? We don't want the American people. And that's a terrible situation to be in. You know, that leaves generational scars no acknowledgement by the government. That's that's the single failure, I think, by the administration. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You yeah. have to level with people. I mean, they just, they know what's going on. They see it and feel it better than you do. I mean, you know, we're talking about officials who aren't right. worried about their next paycheck. They're not worried about having to stretch a Costco chicken all week for their <laughs> families. So um, the American people have a much better sense of what is really happening on the ground. There's another reason why um, people like Janet Yellen in particular would be interested 
interested in sort of spinning the numbers and pointing to, oh, we have these really great, you know, low unemployment numbers, which is true, but does not even come close to telling the whole story of what's going on here. But if you have the economy already slipping into a recession, you can't have the Fed continuing to move forward with these incredibly drastic, hawkish measures. Because, you know, if you already have tipped things into a recession and you still have this high inflation, this proves the point that the Fed policy, the direction they're going in, is really not working and is actually just making things worse. And I guess that's a great transition to talk about what the Fed Fed is set to do this week. Let's go ahead and put this Bloomberg article up on the screen. They're on track at their Wednesday meeting to raise interest rates by 75 basis points. Again, that's just 0.75%. That's for the second straight month when they meet later in July. Um, As you know, they raised interest rates by a quarter point in March, a half point in May, three quarters of a point in June. That was the biggest move since 1994, and they are set to replicate it this week on Wednesday. Now, there had been some expectation, which is not completely out the window, but seems like a very outside chance now, that they might go so far as to lift the rates a full 100 basis points. That's a full percentage point. So that would be, you know, quite Uh, astonishing and quite significant of a move. But 75 basis points is no joke either. Um, This is an extraordinarily hawkish direction that the Fed is pushing things in. And, you know, they're kind of flying blind. Uh, No one really has a great sense of exactly how these interest rates increases are going to trickle down throughout the economy. We already see huge impacts in terms of financing cars, in terms especially of the housing market. As I was saying before, you're starting to see impacts even in the uh, employment market as well, uh, in spite of the fact that you have had this these low unemployment numbers for a long time. Uh, the reason that they seem to have backed off of the full 100 basis point uh, move is because they got some data showing that U.S. consumers' long-term inflation expectations actually declined in early July. So they were forecast to go uh, 2.8% versus 3.1% the month before. That's what people's expectations of inflation were. So they sort of looked at that and I said, okay, maybe we don't need to go quite so far. But I don't want to underplay how extraordinary of a move this still is to have, uh, for the second month in a row, an interest rate increase that we have not seen since 1994. Yeah, and actually, what Wall Street, by the way, the 100 basis points is not off the table. I was just reading this morning that Citibank and many other major traders on Wall Street are still betting on that 100. They're willing to be surprised if they do go ahead and hit 75 basis points. And the reason, again, that this matters is that not only was the previous rate hike the highest since 1994, and then you do it again, but you know, it's it just shows you that given where inflation is right now, which is that we continue to have 40-year highs almost every month since the number comes out, there still doesn't seem to be any indication that they're going to stop. So what others are pointing to, the chief economist over at J.P. Morgan says the real question is what comes after because they're going to have to continue hiking rates. They could go up as high as five, six, seven, eight, nine percent, and they could continue you know month after month every time that they have these quarterly meetings. And if they increase 75 basis points over a period of time, I and mean, we could be looking at mortgage rates, which are nine or 10%. Now, those of you who bought houses in like the 90s uh, won't be that sympathetic, but 
it's a different country. We haven't lived in a country like that for 30 some years. And yeah. I was actually reading that the real issue also is the housing stock. So obviously we have a major housing shortage across the United States, low interest rates and low mortgage rate. The housing boom was actually fueling a hell of a lot of construction. But now guess what the problem is? We actually need that construction to finish. We really do. But why would general contractors finish their houses if they can't sell them? Yeah. So it actually, the housing increase, while yes, will slow down the housing market, market. It also will probably, it, it will probably increase the housing shortage that we have across the United States. So the investment that we have right now is really a major problem. And also I just, you know, I can't emphasize enough in the past, which is that the key tool that the Fed has here is targeting demand and increasing unemployment. That is not going to solve the vast majority of inflation that we have right now in 2022. And you flagged this, and look, no fan of Elizabeth Warren here, but to be fair, she's been actually pretty relentless. Let's put this up there on the screen. She can, writing, listen, she can yeah. be good on economics when she's good. I agree. Yeah. You know, her trade policy and all that, I've always supported. So yep. let's go ahead and put this on the screen. Wall Street Journal opinion page, so very clearly targeted the business economic elite. And she specifically points out here, more aggressive rate hikes are cost millions of jobs and will not address the cause of high prices. And she quotes the Federal Reserve chairman when she asked him, whether that was going to bring down the price of gas or food. And he said, quote, there are many things that we can't affect. Again, the reason it matters is your demand at the grocery store is not the reason that we have seen 7 to 10 to 20% increase uh, for 20%, for example, in the price of egg. It's supply. We have yeah. massive supply problems. We have fertilizer problems. Climate, obviously, you know, there's a scorcher all across the country. There's wildfires all the way out west, not just here. Brazil had a massive shortage. So a coffee is down by, a four, you know, there's a shortage of like 40%. That's the reason that there's such crazy increases. And we've had shortages in the economy now for two years. We've had bad corporate planning and we've had over-financialization. The Fed can't do anything That's right. about all those things. And, and she... Uh, very articulately lays that out. Yeah, know, she did. This piece. is this was well written. Yeah. Um, easy, like very easy for anyone to understand because she makes the argument very clearly. And, and I mean, it echoes a lot of what we've been saying on the show. Mm -hmm. Frankly, we played for you before that moment when she questioned Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell about. So hiking interest rates by the Fed, is that going to deal with increased gas prices? Yeah. Is that going to deal with supply chain shocks? And he very honestly said no. So it's like, okay, she lays down here. She says, all right, so then if raising interest rates by the Fed, if that doesn't solve these underlying issues that are actually the main problem right now, what do they actually do? And she says, when the Fed raises interest rates, increasing the cost of borrowing money, it becomes more expensive for businesses to invest in their operations. As a result, employers will slow hiring, cut hours, and fire workers, leaving families with less money. In the bloodless language of economists, that's referred to as dampening demand. But make no mistake, if the Fed cuts too much or too abruptly, the resulting recession will leave millions of people, disproportionately lower-wage workers and workers of color, with smaller paychecks or no paychecks paycheck at all. So making it clear that, listen, as bad as the inflation situation is, the inflation continuing to soar on top of a recession is a way worse situation. Yep. Um, she closes by saying, before the Federal Reserve triggers a recession, Mr. Powell should remember that the one medicine in his kit does not treat every economic illness. Low unemployment and high inflation are painful, but a Fed-manufactured recession that puts millions of Americans out of work without addressing high prices would be far worse. 
And as I pointed to before, uh, the Washington Post has an article pointing to some of the signs that the job market is starting to slow down. In other words, that yes, not only are we going to have two quarters of GDP contraction, which is the you know sort of standard issue definition of a recession, but even the metrics that the White House is using here are heading in the wrong direction. Let's go ahead and throw this up on the screen. This is according to the Washington Post. They say the job market is beginning to show cracks. Job growth is slowing. Vacancies are down and unemployment claims are ticking up. They point in particular to the tech sector, uh, which has, of course, taken a beating in terms of the stock market. We're going to get a lot of earnings out this week to get a better picture even of what's going on there. Sagar talked about some of this in his monologue yesterday. But they say that tech tech hiring has fallen 9% in just the past month. That's compared with a 5.4% dip in hiring across all industries. Number of tech firms and startups laying off workers has picked up in recent weeks. You've had Netflix, Tesla, Coinbase, all announcing job cuts or hiring freezes. Vimeo, the online video platform and one-time tech darling, announced this week it is laying off 6% of their staff. They also interview a lot of job recruiters and ordinary workers. Some people who, when the job market was super hot, switched jobs or actually recruited into new jobs with big pay increases and exciting new roles and responsibilities only to see themselves laid off months later because of fears of recession and because of the fact that everything is slowing down. So even the one number that the White House really loves to point to and highlight the low unemployment number, um, that is also beginning to show signs of cracking. And as I mentioned before, new unemployment claims are ticking up. Not a good sign. Yeah, the stuff that I pay even more attention to is like the they point here. 7-Eleven, 800 workers at the corporate level. Ford, 8,000 positions in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, Rivian, the electric car maker, down 700. Delivery, That's down not, That thing has always been a mess, though, hasn't it? Rivian? Yeah, although I'm going to say this. <laughs> uh, you know, like, no, Bezos aside, the Rivian looks cool. Uh, I have, I've never driven one. I saw one on the road. It looks sweet. Uh, however, the mortgage lender, Loan, Depo- Loan Depot, 4,800 jobs uh, gone ahead and slashed this year. So it's not just tech, and this stuff will bleed into the broader economy. It's especially if it hits manufacturing. And why this is such a tragedy is we are finally building more stuff in America for the first time in several years. The supply chain crisis, the tariffs, all of it, for the first year on record, we actually brought more manufacturing back to the United States. They said it couldn't be done, people. Well, we proved them that we actually could. And now, all of a sudden, decrease in demand, specifically Fed policy, would absolutely uh, hammer many of these new jobs and would, frankly, only increase the pressure on the White House right now in order to uh, remove tariffs, to outsource even more, and to cut costs. Because I think that's the other point that we should remember, which is that manufacturing, investment, and all of that doesn't just come out of capital. It comes out of your ability to borrow. And if borrowing is way more expensive, you can't hire more people and you can't invest in your future workforce. And we already know what Wall Street's going to do. They're going to cut jobs, try and buy back their own stock in order to try and save their pensions and all this other stuff. But none of that translates into a better economic future, I think, for people. There's, so it's a grim picture. It really the, is. And the, the high-level view is that the reason why they are leaning so heavily on this, uh, as Elizabeth Warren puts it, this medicine that is not the right cure for the disease that ails us 
is because the only institutions that still function, that still function, and I mean function in terms of actually being able to do anything, are basically the ones that are beholden to rich people. Also non-elected. All of, and, yeah. and undemocratic, yeah. right? I mean, everything else has been completely and intentionally, by the way, hamstrung, gridlocked, made so it, you know, is not responsive to the people whatsoever. And so the only institutions that are left that actually have power and are able to operate, not in a good fashion, but able to operate are the ones that have been sort of designed by and for rich people, the Fed being uh, key among those. Let's talk about Ukraine. This is a really troubling development. And you should be able to both separate the obvious view that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is unjust from your also ability to critique the Ukrainian government and the way that it acts domestically. They are not holy gods. They are able to criticize them supposedly as allies, given that we provide them billions of dollars. We should probably hold them to a standard of which we try to hold all of people who are in the West. Unfortunately, the Ukrainian government has really pursued something that I find very troubling. Let's put this up there on the screen. They have issued a, quote, blacklist of Russian propagandists. And this was from the Center for Countering Disinformation, established Man, in 2021. That sounds familiar. Under President Zelensky and headed by a former lawyer who sits on the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine. And its aim is to, quote, detect and counter propaganda and destructive disinformation and to prevent the, quote, manipulation of public opinion. Well, on July 14th, it went ahead and published a list of politicians, academics, activists that they say are, quote, promoting Russian propaganda, including some not only Western intellectuals, but politicians. So let me read you some of the list. Rand Paul, the current Republican senator, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, military and geopolitical analyst Edward Lutwak, realist and political scientist John Mersheimer, and finally, heterodox journalist Glenn Greenwald. Now, again, the criteria for the inclusion is completely unclear. They simply label them in a list of having, quote, pro-Russian opinions. Now, I love this because really dig into what exactly the reasons for being labeled this are. Edward Lutwak, for example, was labeled a Russian propagandist for suggesting that referendums should be held in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Mersheimer is recorded as a, a Russian propagandist for saying this, quote, NATO has been in Ukraine since 2014 and for saying, quote, NATO provoked Putin. As far as Greenwald and others, they don't even give a proper reason. And I really think that going through the details of this matters because the, quote, Russian propagandist label is thrown out willy-nilly, but the Ukrainian government is taking its cue from the Twitter activists and the Western intellectuals yeah. here in Washington. That's right. And Edward Lutwak actually gives a perfect, uh, a perfect retort. He says... From 24th of February, day one of the war, I have relentlessly argued not just the United States, the UK, Norway, and others should send weapons to Ukraine, but also called out the reluctance of France, Germany, and Italy to do so. I have personally lobbied the defense ministers of NATO countries to send more weapons as the part of a war effort. 
I am not exactly Putin's most faithful agent. What's happened is this. I said there is victory party and the victory party is not realistic. Their idea is if Russia can be defeated, then Putin will fall. This is also a moment when nuclear escalations becomes a feasibility. It is a fantasy to believe Russia can be squarely defeated. In Kyiv, they have interpreted this stance as meaning I am pro-Russia. I think that's the perfect example. Giving a realistic analysis. Edward Lutwak is an American strategist. He's trying to think about what is best for the United States, best for peace. He's not Ukrainian, and it's not his job to you know, faithfully tout the Ukrainian party line. Same when we think about John Mearsheimer, and we played even the clip here. Mearsheimer is a realist. He's long been against NATO expansion. But by the same definition of John Mearsheimer, John Mearsheimer, as a, quote, Russian propagandist, well then... George Kennan, the father of containment against the Cold War, a victory against the Soviet Union. He wrote the same thing in the 1990s yeah. in the New York Times. Well, by the way, yeah. Mearsheimer was way more correct about Yeah, of course he was. I yeah. mean, he actually predicted yeah. very accurately this exact sequence of events. So while, no, I don't co-sign everything that right. he says, the idea that he should be blacklisted, uh, he's a Russian agent, this is crazy. I mean, maybe yeah. the most disturbing one is actually Senator Rand Paul. I agree. And yeah. listen, he's a sitting whatever, United States politician. What, ex exactly. Yeah. I mean, whatever you think of any of these characters and their views on the issues, we we have to be able to have a debate that takes into account what the enemy is thinking as well. Rand Paul, you know, maybe his greatest great crime here in their view is that he didn't even say don't send the weapons. He said we should be tracking them. Yeah. He said we should have <laughs> inspector general to keep right. track of where these weapons are going. And lo and behold, just I think a few weeks later, and we covered this on the show too, you had um, European law enforcement saying, we have a problem with a lot of, yes, you know, black right. market weapons coming out of Ukraine. And this is something we really need to pay attention to because this is a big problem. Because once those weapons are shipped into the country, we have no idea what happens next. So this was an incredibly rational, mm -hmm. <laughs> rational, reasonable idea that everyone acted like, oh, this is ridiculous. And you just are like a Russian puppet. You, also, yeah. And you know what? Here, here's the yeah. other thing is even people who do, I think, go too far and do, you know, echo some of the Kremlin talking mm -hmm. points or whatever, they should be allowed to do that. You should be allowed to hear what the enemy's line is, what they're thinking. And so this is why I've always been against, you know, cracking down on, oh, we can't see RT on mm -hmm. YouTube and we can't have any of the sort of Kremlin state TV or state media um, available in the West because it really does hinder our ability to understand how they are approaching this and what they are thinking, what they're selling to their population. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And, you know, call me whatever you want for saying this, but, you know, Rand Paul is a sitting United States member, senator, an elected me member of the United States government. And last time I checked, we shipped you and $40 billion of weapons guaranteed your security to, quote unquote, fight for freedom. So how about you keep your mouth shut about our politicians, given the fact that we are literally guaranteeing the existence of well, your country. Another, so, right, and yeah. another, another one who's on the list, yeah. Lula da Silva, who yeah, is very likely to, I mean, he's the former president of Brazil, he's very yeah. likely to be the next president of Brazil, leading significantly in the polls last I saw, not that I follow Brazilian politics like extraordinarily closely, but this is this isn't Marine Le Pen is right. on there. Again, I don't care what you think about these people. And this is a broader trend in Ukraine mm -hmm. that is very uncomfortable, I think, for people to talk oh, about very, very because so. they just want to, you know, put up the Ukrainian flag and be support in support of the Ukrainian people. I totally get it. I share the same sentiment. We also have to be honest about the fact that this is a state that has suffered from a lot of corruption mm -hmm. um, that is 
that before the war and since the war has started has cracked down on a lot of dissent, banning poli- opposition political parties, parties yeah. banning dissent in terms of what their population can consume, and then coming out with you know uh, blacklists like this, which I, I do want to be clear, it's not it is not at all spelled out what this list means, how they're going right. to use it. It is sort of like the you know disinformation board that they floated here, where it's very vague what the actual purpose of the list Here's is. Here's my question. What if Rand Paul wants to go on a congressional delegation to Ukraine? Are they going to ban him from doing so? Yeah. Also, Glenn. You know, Glenn is a journalist. Why shouldn't he be? He should absolutely be allowed to go into Ukraine and to maybe report on how some of these weapons are doing. Save this for last. I love Glenn's response. Here's what he says. <laughs> uh, war proponents yes, in the does. West and other functionaries of the Western security state have used the same tactic for decades to demonize anyone questioning the foreign policy of the U.S. and NATO. Chief among them, going back to the start of the Cold War, is accusing any dissident of spreading Russian propaganda or otherwise serving the Kremlin. That's all this is. The Ukrainians is just standard McCarthyite idiocy. The Ukrainians have the absolute right to pursue whatever war policies they want, but then they start demanding that my country and my government use its resources to fuel their effort. Then I, along with all other Americans, have the absolute right to question that policy or to point out its dangers and risks. I don't care at all about Ukraine's attempts to shut down debate in our country by smearing journalists and politicians who are questioning U.S. and NATO policy as being Russian propagandists. That tactic is as inconsequential as it is cheap, tawdry, and discredited. I completely agree with that sentiment. In our country, we have a robust debate about who we support and who we don't. The whole reason, supposedly, by the way, for su- oh, supporting these people. kind of out of bounds sometimes here, too. Okay, fine. But, yeah. you know, at least we should try and aspire to that. But the whole reason that we supposedly support these people is the cause of freedom, etc. Well, you know, if you're going to be behaving just like the Russians, who also, by the way, probably have many of the people who accuse Glenn of being a Russian propagandist on their blacklist— then what is the point of this entire thing? It exposes a hell of a lot of hypocrisy and people who really believe in the supposed free Ukraine, Western Ukraine, that's the whole reason yeah, for letting them in the, the EU, EU and all this. Potential NATO member. Uh, well, potential NATO member and EU person is uh, issuing blacklists against U.S. politicians and U.S. journalists. That's not how they're supposed to behave. Nobody will say it, though, because they themselves will also be accused of a Russian propagandist. Ukraine, please don't put me on the list. I still do want to visit your beautiful <laughs> Joining us now is a great guest, Jonathan Swan. He's a reporter over at Axios. He has a fascinating news story on the plans for a second Trump administration, if one to materialize. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. It go ahead and details the radical plan for Trump's second term that sco- focuses on something called Schedule F. So, Jonathan, this is one of those things we focus a hell of a lot here on this show and try to emphasize to people that personnel is policy, something that not many can understand. So this is an entirely personnel plan that details an executive order and more that you've spent a long time reporting out. Why don't you go ahead and lay this out for the audience? Well, um, President Trump's or former President Trump's biggest regret from his first term is personnel. And it's not even close. I mean, mm-hmm. of all the things that he wishes he could have done differently, it's the people he hired. And every time he sees uh, one of his former cabinet secretaries come out with a new book or go on television and criticize him, uh, it reignites his animus uh, towards them. And how the f did we pick these people? Who you know, blah blah blah. It's just you know, it's a, it's sort sure. of well well worn rant. Fine, okay, th- that. Great. He, he, he was ranting about that for a long time. The question I embarked upon actually really started thinking about this a year ago, but um, 
the reporting got much more intense in the last six months was fine. You can whine about this, but is anyone serious actually doing anything about it? Because right. if they're not, then who cares? I'm not writing a story about Trump, you know, whining about people being disloyal. And what I discovered, and, and it took me a while to kind of piece all the bits of it together, is there there are actually serious people working on this problem who have Trump's blessing. In some cases, they have Trump's funding. And um, they're, sorry, let me just uh, put this on more stable footing. No worries, hey, no uh, problem. Yeah, so, so, so there are actually serious people working on this problem and they're well-funded and they're experienced. Some of them are quite adept at using government power. And there are sort of a network of groups out there. Um, the Conservative Partnership Institute, which has got people like Ed Corrigan, who worked on Trump's transition, Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff. There's um, Russ Votes group. Russ was um, Trump's uh, director of office and management and budget. Um, and um, you know, there's this group, America First Policy Institute, run by President Trump's former domestic um, policy director. Um, each group is fits into this ecosystem in a different way. And then there are some you know, interesting groups that aren't affiliated with Trump, but I would say are affiliated with the America First movement. They're ideologically um, simpatico. And one of them mm -hmm. is a group that I featured is a younger group, which actually you're on the board of. Um, yeah, Sega, which that's is right. American Moment, which um, I think what they're doing is really interesting. They're younger guys, um, Saurabh Sharma, 24-year-old guy from Texas, um, very smart guy and has very good connections in, I would just say, the younger America First movement. And they're developing a pipeline of talent at that um, more mid-level junior job. So you can sort of see it. And what the piece lays out is how it all comes together. And at the center of all of it is this legal instrument, which most of your viewers uh, probably weren't aware of. It's called Schedule F. Basically, every time a new president comes in, they can replace about 4,000 so-called political appointees, right? It's this rotating layer of personnel at the top level of the government. But below that sits this mass of people, around 2 million federal employees, and they're effectively uh, insulated from being replaced or fired. It's, it's extremely difficult to fire them. They have really strong civil service protections that are enshrined in law. And to grossly simplify it, what this executive order does is it allows a, a, a cabinet secretary on behalf of the president to reassign potentially tens of thousands of um, civil servants into a new employment category called Schedule F, which removes all of their employment protections, or certainly almost all of them, and allows the, uh, the president or the cabinet secretary to very quickly replace them. So it, it, what it does is any, it, it stipulates that any uh, federal government employee who's working on policy, who's influencing policy, so that doesn't apply to someone who's you know, answering the phones in a field office, but people who are at that top layer um, influ influencing policy, they become replaceable. And so what is happening now on the outside of people affiliated with Trump is they're building an alternative labor source to, to, to meet that scale, which would be unprecedented scale. They don't think, to be clear, they don't think they're going to need to fire 50,000 people, but they might need to fire an additional six or 7,000 people. And so therefore you need a talent pool of not just 4,000, but probably 10,000, 11,000, 12,000. That's a lot of people. That's a very ambitious undertaking. And that's what's going on right now. Yeah. So I think there are a couple things to, um, 
to point out here. First of all, part of what you're describing sounds a lot like what normal political operations do all the time. You think about, you know, the Clinton campaign, they had their sort of like administration in waiting, primarily at the Center for American Progress. The Biden team, they had West Exec Advisors, which was a sort of essentially their like foreign policy team in waiting or their cabinet in waiting that they're able then to pluck directly from to um, staff up their administration. The piece that is different is the Schedule F piece, yes. which allows them to get rid of a much larger number of, of individuals and sort of put in place their, their true believers and the ideologues who are committed to their cause. I guess my big question reading this is whether you actually think that a Trump administration could pull this off because they're certainly the last time around they were not known for their discipline or their competence or their ability to follow through with the plan i'm just thinking about like you know how many times did they oh this is going to be infrastructure week and it never actually right. ended up being infrastructure week so when you talk about something of the level of scale and complexity yeah. that you're laying out in this piece do you actually think that a second trump administration is going to have the kind of discipline that it takes to carry something like this out well, I'm skeptical, and that's why I have throughout the piece, it, it's it's laced pretty heavily with skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge undertaking. And as I said, developing that labor source, it, it, is, it would be of unprecedented scale. But there's a few things that I would just put in the column of it's possible and shouldn't be dismissed. The first is, I'm not suggesting in this article that Donald Trump himself has changed, that he is now some disciplined, uh, you know, monastic figure who's who's transformed himself in exile and is sort of reading Marcus Aurelius and is ready to, you know, come onto the scene as a complete... No, that's absurd. Obviously, that's absurd. What's changed is the people working on this and the people around him. And he has a very hardened mentality against having any of these sort of people who I would just call them the sort of um, restrainers, the people who wanted to restrain him from what they saw as his most extreme impulses. And there are some people working on it that I would say have a, a track record of implementation inside government. Russ Vogt is a very good example of that. Yep. The other thing I would just say to you is this is not some fantastical document. This is an executive order that went through legal vetting and it was issued, it was signed into law at the end of 2020. And Democrats are alarmed enough about its resurrection that Representative Jerry Connolly from Virginia, who uh, chairs the subcommittee that oversees the federal civil service, he's attached an amendment to the annual defense bill this year to try to prevent a future president from reviving Schedule F. It passed the House. Uh, Republicans are probably going to try and, well, I know they're going to try and block it in the Senate. So um, the Democrats are very worried about it. The other thing I would just say is, it actually doesn't require a sort of, um, you don't need to be Oliver Wendell Holmes to fire a whole bunch of people. Mm -hmm. You can do that pretty freaking easily. And actually, if you look at a big part of what they want to do, which is fire people in the intelligence community, they actually, you don't even need Schedule F for that. A lot of those people are not protected by um, these civil service uh, protections. So you might say, well, um, can they pull this off? Well, sending a, a letter and firing someone is actually not that difficult. Um, and so you don't need, you know, the great geniuses of the world to come together to pull this off. What what would be interesting to know is who's going to replace these people? Are you going to have that labor source? That's the part that I remain skeptical about. Yes. But implementing a purge is not actually that difficult necessarily if they have the this legal instrument combined with the will to do it. 
Absolutely. I think one thing I also want to focus on is what do these people believe? Um, because the real, you know, you can fire people, you can appoint them. But I think one of the things that stung Trump uh, was that many of the people who he would hire and even many of these groups, they don't even necessarily ideologically agree with each other on anything. So when Trump has a criterion for who he wants to elevate and put into a personnel office, does he have any policy behind that? Or is it simply he's never criticized me on TV and he believes, or at least mouths the language of stop the steal? I mean, beyond that, does it matter for to be able to end up in one of these jobs? That's what I'm most well, curious about this. Well, this is where you distinguish between Trump himself and the people he appoints. And, and so what's interesting is so the answer for Trump is no, he doesn't really care that much about policy. Right. It's stop the steal and loyalty to him. Absolutely. Like he said this a million times before, I want people who are loyal and you can <laughs> get very closely, you get very quickly into his inner circle by just sucking up to him. Of course, we know that. What's interesting though, is the person that I expect him to appoint to run his transition, which is John McEntee, who ran his personnel office. John McEntee is an ideologue, actually, hmm. and he does believe in these policies. He is a very, very anti-interventionist on foreign policy, and he is hardcore on immigration. And so by dint of appointing John McEntee and people like him, Russ Vogt is it authentically uh, is sort of almost, comes out of the Ross Perot type yep. of Republican. So some of the key people that will be, uh, I expect, I expect things could change and, you know, nothing's certain in Trump world. But some of the key people that I expect to be running this actually are America first ideologues. Um, and so that's why I, I do believe there will be a pretty strong ideological um, uh, criteria applied to um, these selections. And, and by the way, a lot of the groups that are developing this, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, I don't know, I wouldn't describe the America First Policy Institute, I wouldn't describe their foreign policy proposals. You know, they what they put out on Ukraine could have been written by John Bolton. So exactly. I'm not suggesting that there's ideological uniformity across these groups. There absolutely isn't. But I do believe that if he has people like McEntee running it, they will be discerning, they're deep enough in this that they can discern between these groups and see the types of people that they wanna have in key roles. Can that be done at scale? I'm very skeptical. Yeah, that's the excellent, uh, excellent category. Yeah, absolutely. There. And yeah. then lastly, you uh, mentioned that Democrats, including Congressman Jerry Connolly from Virginia, are trying to block their ability to reimpose mm -hmm. this Schedule F uh, executive order. What do you think the fate of that is? Um, I think it's unlikely because I do think it's going to be very hard to get that through the Senate. Um, and if they don't manage to block it, they'll certainly challenge it. There'll, there'll be huge legal challenges against yep. it, but Trump's advisors like their cha their chances in a court uh, system that, that's now dominated by conservatives at the highest level. Um, if they do get Schedule F into, uh, sorry, if they do get this amendment into, a, into force to prevent a future president from introducing Schedule F, Trump could still execute, as, as far as I understand from talking to experts on this, a pretty large scale purge of the intelligence community, even without Schedule F. Ah, that's a great point, right? Because I believe they're governed under a different authority. Jonathan, Correct. this is fascinating, absolutely fascinating reporting. It's long, but I encourage everybody to go and read it. It's just, it influences everything that we talk about here all the time. So we're going to put a link down there in the description. And we really appreciate you making the time for us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. And it's absolutely. a two-part series. So um, there's, great. there's it no really more. goes deep in the second yeah. part on Schedule F. So Perfect. thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, our pleasure.
All right, literally while we're filming the show, we get the official live numbers of the U.S. economy as the recession definition game had been playing out. The Biden administration's fears have come true. So the U.S. economy shrinks for the second straight quarter as the press is saying it, quote, igniting recession fears. In other words, it is technically a recession. Now, all of these definitions just are so annoying to me. And I was talking about this yesterday. <laughs> Nobody cares whether you're technically in a recession or you're technically in a boom. They care, can you afford something? and are you employed? So to that extent, no, the definition doesn't matter. But yeah. to the extent that politically the White House is gaslighting all of us by saying, no, we're not technically in a recession. Actually, we're in the strongest job economy since World War II. Stop, stop. Like that is just not comporting with the facts whatsoever. The current facts are that the U.S. economy contracted for the second straight quarter, growth falling by 1% approximately, so 0.9% annual rate in the April to June period. That matters because GDP also fell for 1.6 annualized rate in the first three months of the year. So you have two straight quarters of technical, again, technical shrinking GDP. Now, the pushback is that we have a low unemployment rate. Now, it does seem, while yes, inflation is high, that consumer spending does not to be in a be in typical recession territory. But that's the whole point as to this economic moment and the economy that we're living in is very wonky. Arguing yeah. whether we're technically in a recession or not really, honestly, doesn't matter. At last time I checked, inflation is sky high on food and on gas. You know, the Biden administration is celebrating the gas is only $4.30 a gallon nationally. The economy's not good. I just don't know why that we can't just lead with that and that be the demarcation point. But unfortunately, the White House has chose, chosen to majorly politicize the, quote, definition of recession when it does them no good. I see no point why yeah. they would pick this fight. Well, that, so I guess foolish. That's a part for me yeah. is it's just sort of silly. It's like this is not helping you all yes. politically to deny the reality that people right. are living and feeling every day. Right. And it's, you know, filled with a sort of condescension, condescension towards the American people who know exactly what is going on in their own lives in real time. Even before you had these uh, new numbers indicating that you had two straight quarters of negative GDP growth, you had 58% of Americans saying they thought we were already in a recession. So people, exactly. people have been there, whether yeah. you're you know, parsing the words of the technical definition or not, ultimately. And also, um, yesterday, we did have the Fed move on. Mm -hmm. It was what we expected, 75 basis points, which um, I think in some ways people are like, oh, that's no big deal because they had floated possibly 100 basis points. That'd be a full percentage point um, interest rate hike. But we had not until last month we had not had the Fed hike interest rates by that um, high of a number since 1994. Mm -hmm. So to do it two months straight in a row is really quite exceptional. And um, I continue to see news coming out of the housing market in particular about just what a dire impact that is having on you know new housing starts, which by the way, we need housing to be built. That's the other piece of this yeah. that is really important to remember is that when the Fed is hiking interest rates, that's not only hitting you directly, what they call like dampening demand, which just basically means you don't have money to spend, but it's also impacting companies' ability to invest in things like you know new housing construction. So it's also hurting the supply side, which is the exact opposite of what you ultimately want to do. So um, again, some really disturbing numbers on the GDP growth piece. Last quarter, uh, this was attributable a lot to the fact that companies have been struggling with what their inventory levels should be. You know, they yeah. got caught 
with, uh, you know, their just-in-time practices not having enough, and they had shortages, then they stocked up, then they had too much, and they had surpluses. And so they've been having trouble sort of figuring out the proper inventory levels. And since they've been selling off inventory rather than acquiring more, that's a hit on GDP yep. growth. That was a lot of the story of last quarter. And right now, personal consumption, as I talked about, it did grow by 1%, but it actually has decelerated significantly by a full percentage point from 1.8% in Q1. So that actually is less than what was expected for the personal consumption rate, which does mean that we are seeing a deceleration, although it is still growing. That's kind of the full picture. I don't think it damn matters, but White House doing itself no favor by trying to redefine all of this when honestly, they're doing some good things. So let's talk about the good things and we'll start with the CHIPS Act. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Yesterday, the Senate passed the CHIPS Act, providing grants and other incentives to the U.S. computer chip industry to better compete with China in science and technology. It is now heading to the House for final approval. Now, this is kind of a landmark piece of legislation. We're talking here about $58 billion with a B being pumped directly into semiconductor chip manufacturing. However, it has split the U.S. politics in some interesting ways. It was a 64 to 33 vote, but not all Democrats actually did vote for the bill. Let's put this up there. So the Republicans who voted for it are Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Mark Capito, Cassidy, Collins, Cornyn, Danes, Graham, Haggerty, McConnell, Moran, Portman, Romney, Sass, Tillis, Wicker, and Young. Now, in terms of the Democrats or independents who voted against the bill, actually, Senator Bernie Sanders, and then those who did not vote were Patrick Leahy, Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski. So the reasons behind all of this are kind of fascinating. Uh, let's put this up there on the screen first, which is what is this thing? Well, as I said, it is $58 billion, which is being sent directly to semiconductor manufacturing specifically, but it includes hundreds of billions of dollars more for National Science Foundation grants, which are able to be used specifically for, in, for investing in research behind cutting edge R&D as to the development of both AI, quantum computing, wireless communications, precision agriculture, and more. So it's a major grant towards funding institutions. Now, now, before we play uh, Sanders's objection, I actually found it interesting. So I reached out to some of my friends who are mm -hmm. in the Senate, and I was like, hey, like, why did Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton, people who were very pro-CHIPS Act, vote against this bill? Yeah. Here is the reasoning that I got, which is that <laughs> the current bill actually gives an incredible amount of discretion to the Commerce Department. And part of the problem is that with that $58 billion, you don't just grant it to these companies, right? It's not in the legislation. You give power to the Commerce Department, who gets to use definitions and guidance to determine who's going to get it or not. And right. not only just who, but what projects. And part of the fear was that there was not stringent enough stuff written into the bill that would say that Intel or whomever might say, hey, we need you to sub subsidize this uh, while also being able to boost production in China. So their objection to the bill is that there was not enough guardrails on the legislation to make sure that the legislation would not be gamed by the computer chip industry yes. in order to make sure that they still pre have production in China and not. But let's, oh, go ahead. Before yeah. we get to, to yeah. Senator Sanders' objections, because they, they echo that in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, bit. his, his right. concerns are more on the front of um, unionization. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are very few sort of requirements put on these companies who are going to be beneficiaries of a massive subsidy. So 
We've seen before, you know, these big corporate subsidies going to like Foxconn in Wisconsin, sure, yeah. and it turns out to be a total boondoggle. boondoggle that's a disaster for taxpayers and no jobs ultimately materialize. So I think there are legitimate concerns here about whether we could be snookered again. And ultimately, you know, you think you're going to get this chips manufacturing facility, have this good bedrock piece of industrial policy, which is incredibly important. And then ultimately, the whole thing falls apart and is just another big corporate giveaway. I, I do think that those fears are really justified. However, um, a little bit of context on this, which we've covered and you've covered mm. in particular on this show extensively, but I just want to remind people of why this matters so much is because something like 786 chips manufacturing facilities have gone overseas yes. in the past several decades. And it has left us with almost no um, domestic manufacturing capability. This is really critical. It's critical for you as a consumer. This is in all your electronics. Um, this is in a lot of the new cars especially the new electric cars, yes. um, really dependent on this technology. It's also really critical for defense. And this is why uh, part of why Republicans are so interested in it is because you have to have these chips to be able to manufacture the advanced weaponry that mm -hmm. we depend on. So the fact that this is overwhelmingly, I mean, actually, the, the advanced chips are overwhelmingly being manufactured in Taiwan. Yes, correct. Not a good situation whatsoever, and something that people on both sides of the aisle have been interested in dealing with. So the big question is whether this act has been crafted well enough to actually accomplish the goal, or whether you're going to end up with corporations getting paid and no jobs being created and no new innate domestic capacity. So that's kind of the the backstory. Extremely in the well here. said. And as you said, we know we already live in a massive. Uh, already we have huge blows to the U.S. economy, hundreds of billions of dollars in lost economic growth from the ship shortage of the last two years alone. Let's play Senator Sanders' objection. I'll give you my thoughts on the other side. Madam President, uh, I do not argue with anyone uh, who makes the point that there is a global shortage in microchips and semiconductors, which is making it harder for manufacturers to produce the cars, the cell phones, the household appliances, and the electronic equipment that we need. Uh, this shortage is, in fact, costing American workers good-paying jobs and raising prices for families. And that is why I personally strongly support the need to expand U.S. microchip production. But the question that we should be asking is this. Should American taxpayers provide the microchip industry with a blank check, blank check of over $76 billion at the same exact time when semiconductor companies are making tens of billions of dollars in profits and paying their CEOs exorbitant compensation packages? That really is one of the questions that we should be asking. And I think the answer to that is a resounding, no, this is an enormously profitable industry. So here's my objection to what Sanders is saying. And look, I'm not saying I enjoy corporate welfare, but we live in a free market capitalist country. You cannot force companies to manufacture here. Now, there are enough stringent restrictions in the bill, which is the most objectionable one to me would be if you could buy back your own stock. You cannot use any of this money to buy back yeah. your own stock. So I'm like, okay. Second, it is it is earmarked specifically towards chip manufacturing. I also wanna get to the point that he's making there. He is not wrong that they are more prof profitable than ever. Do you know why they became profitable? Because here's the issue. We design all of the world's best semiconductors right here in the United States, Intel and others. However, we manufacture them in Taiwan and in Asia. The reason to do so is because that was the way that chip manufacturers were able to boost 
profits. So in order to actually reduce profitability or at least incentivize them to go in the right direction, we are directly using this act to subsidize production. And the production is what matters more than anything. Both from a geostrategic point of view, I mean, look, this is part of the reason why if China invaded Taiwan, the U.S. economy, I'm not kidding, would shut down within like six months. Yeah. Like the U.S. consumer electronic, uh, gone. I mean, no more phone, no more televisions. Like everything that we use is over. And that is a bad situation. You shouldn't have a single choke point that exists like that. That's why I support this legislation. I hear the concerns of Sanders, of my you know, other like-minded friends who work in the offices. But listen, we have got to get out ahead of this. It takes 10 years in order to build some of these chip fabs and other manufacturing facilities. We need the jobs already. Intel is uh, building. They've been waiting for this piece of legislation to pass. We need them in, in Ohio. We need them in Arizona. We need them in Texas, all across the country. Other uh, chip manufacturers are already saying they're gonna invest increasingly 20 to $100 billion here in the United States. We need this money. We, we just simply do. We cannot exist. So listen, is it baked full of some stuff that I'm not gonna like? And are some of these companies always gonna do the best thing? Absolutely not. However, this thing got to 64 votes in the US Senate. Uh, hopefully, from what we see right now, it is going to pass in the House. So and to a, that, a little take more the into, into out, and we'll get to that in yeah, a minute. That's about, right. Yeah, but, a loop. Well, uh, let me just say, yeah. <clears throat> I am. I, I don't think that Senator Sanders is really wrong about anything that he's saying here. I think yeah. his concerns are entirely legitimate and justified. Right. And the reality is, and this does suck, like, Intel is basically blackmailing the U.S. government because they were going to create this um, production facility in Columbus, Ohio, and then they were like, ah, don't know if we're going to. You're going to have to bribe us mm. to do it. And that's the reality of the situation. And that exactly. does totally suck. And by the way, Bernie's um, Bernie offered an amendment here, which should have been included and, of course, was voted down, but is entirely reasonable, which says that if uh, chip microchip companies get this taxpayer assistance, they shouldn't be able to outsource American jobs overseas good addition, repeal existing collective bargaining agreements, and must remain neutral in any union organizing effort. That should have been added. It wasn't. So the bill is worse for not having provisions like that sure. in place to make sure that you actually end up with these jobs and with this production and that it is being done by um, union, uh, union workers. However, when you look at it on balance and you say, okay, but this is the reality we live in, and yes, you are going to have to, in order to get this through, you're going to have to have Republicans on board. It is 100% the case that the things that get through the Senate are things that corporate America likes. There is no doubt about that. Senator Sanders' point on that is, is well taken as well. He goes on to say, like, okay, you know, what's the reason why we get the corporate subsidies through but not, say, universal health care? Yeah. He's, He's not wrong. He's not wrong about any of that. Yeah. But when you take the— um, reality as it exists on balance if i was in the senate would i vote for this bill i would because i it's industrial policy that's something that has been sort of like um off the table for yeah. a lot of years yeah let's normalize something it. something yeah. i believe in um yeah. i wish it was done a little bit better than this which is most you know it does have some elements of basically like a corporate giveaway but this is a really critical piece of bringing a critical supply line back to our shores and hopefully creating some good-paying American jobs um, manufacturing these advanced chips, which is critical for, again, consumer products, electric cars, 
advanced weaponry, all of the above. So even though I think the objections are well-founded, I can't really disagree with anything that Bernie is saying here. If this is the only bill that I have a chance to vote for, yeah, yeah I would probably vote in favor and of I, it. I, and that's why I take the concerns of the people who say it's not, it's too much power in the hands of commerce. I take the concerns of that, but I do get annoyed when I see like Robert Reich and all those people, like corporate welfare. I'm like, what are you, a Cato libertarian now? I mean, listen, like sometimes corporate welfare is good if it's good for the people who are workers, as we all found. It's like the airline bailout. I wasn't opposed to bailing out the airlines as long as you do it right. Now it wasn't done properly, and I think that that is certainly an issue, and we should use that as a that we should use that as a track record. But is that the reason to never bail out the airlines again? No, we need air travel. So it's the same thing when it comes to the chips. I don't think it's going to be perfect. It certainly is not. And there's some interesting legislative maneuvers we'll talk about in the Joe Manchin block, which are kind of interesting as to how all of this was kind of used to hoodwink Republicans. But on its face, we should celebrate when people do things which are good for the country. Sometimes, yes, that aligns with corporate interests, and I'm generally okay with that. Yeah, we got to keep an eye on it and make sure we hold them accountable. Yeah. Oh, if by they the way, if there's cheating, taking the money and running and never creating anything. If there's cheating, who do you think will be the very first people who talk about it? It will be right here on this show, and I can promise you that. All right, let's talk about Mansion. Let's talk about Mansion. Well, this was a surprise. We actually might have a deal with Joe Manchin, and it's kind of significant. Very There's significant. A, a fairly yeah. large, deal. fairly large deal to be passed in, you know, through reconciliation with just the 50 Democratic votes. Assuming we can get everybody on board, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let's go ahead and throw this first piece up on the screen. This really came out of nowhere. Um, they say Manchin announces support for the Inflation Reduction Act, aka the, aka the Reconciliation Bill, formerly known as Build Back Better. His quote in this piece is, Build Back Better is dead, and instead we have the opportunity to make our country stronger by bringing Americans together. And he outlines the detail in the statement. I mean, read through this statement, it's classic Manchin. He takes a lot of shots um, at Democrats mm -hmm. and progressives and the Biden administration and makes it clear that his priority is dealing with um, inflation and that he went through and made sure all of the pieces of this deal are ultimately going to combat inflation. And he does, you know, some deficit hawk language here as well, which is part of this bill too. But, uh, and we're going to get into the details in a moment, you know, everybody really thought that this was all dead, done, gone, Absolutely. that Manchin was not negotiating in anything approaching good faith. And now truly at the last minute, we have a possible fairly significant deal. So let's talk about what policies are in this from our friend Jeff Stein over at the Washington Post. Among policies Manchin talks about in announcing deal with Schumer, um, prescription drug reform. So this would be the Medicare uh, yep. drug pricing negotiation, which Democrats have been running on for like decades now. 15% minimum tax on corporations uh, who earn over a billion dollars. Significant dollars for renewables, including hydrogen, nuclear, SAGR, mm -hmm. fossil fuels, and energy storage. And then he says a separate deal to do permitting reform in the fall. Let me pause on that part for a minute. It's a kind of a side note, but one of the things that Manchin required in order to be involved in this deal is that the Biden administration is going to green light some new fossil fuel projects. Yes. That's when, when they say permitting reform, that's what that means. Now, um, as we're learning the details of this, and we can go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen. This is more from Jeff Stein. Here are some of the specific dollar amounts. So in terms of raising revenue through tax hikes, you'd have about $313 billion on that 15% 
1% corporate minimum tax, which again, only applies to large corporations. You'd gain about $288 billion through that prescription drug pricing reform, Medicare being able to negotiate, something that is a complete no-brainer. $124 billion on IRS tax enforcement, and $14 billion on closing the carried interest loophole that benefits private equity ghouls. On the spending side, the big pieces are $369 billion for energy and for climate change, and $64 billion on ACA extension. So, Overall, um, the analyses that I've read have said that the spending on climate here, even though obviously it's not ideal to green light new fossil fuel projects when you're focusing on just the climate, the spending here is goes way beyond the, um, you know, cut emissions significantly, way beyond the increase that would be caused by this yeah. permitting reform that's going to happen in the future. Let me also tell you why I'm very happy with the, <laughs> look, my credit to Joe Manchin, he specifically fought against the ideologues who tried to make this a non-technology neutral tax credit, which means that the tax credit will be allowed to go to wind, solar, uh, biomass, and nuclear, which for the past, we have specifically blocked nuclear and other power sources out of these tech credits. This is one of my biggest critiques of climate policy is they specifically subsidize solar and wind to the detriment of nuclear power. Now with technology neutral, it all comes down to carbon emissions, baby. And with that one, I think that we all know, especially not only carbon, but in terms of good capacity. Of course, the devil's in the details. And if they do do this, spend this on boondoggle solar projects and wind projects, I'll be the first, but to have that written into a law is actually a big win for nuclear power proponents like myself. Let's go ahead and put the next one up there on the screen from David Dayan. This shows you again the specifics on the actual revenue raise. And let's spend a little bit of time here. The biggest revenue raiser is called the 15% corporate minimum tax, called a book min tax. That tax is a very interesting one, has not really been talked a lot in Washington, and was originally a proposal by Senator Elizabeth Warren, which kind of came out of nowhere. The reason why is it doesn't piss off Joe Manchin who is for raising corporate taxes. It also doesn't piss off corporate uh, Kristen Cinema, who is against raising individual taxes. So in that environment, it's actually pretty hard to raise revenue. The way this would work is that many corporations technically do not pay any corporate uh, taxes whatsoever. What they do is they use energy tax credits and other write-offs in order to make sure that their uh, corporate tax rate is often you know, 2%. In some cases, they actually get paid money by the government. This would make it so that even if you have energy tax credits, even if you do so, you still have to pay 15% corporate tax on that. And again, this would only apply to you know, corporations in the United States. And it does raise a pretty significant amount of money. The other way that it's quote unquote raising revenue not really, though, because it's more about savings, prescription drug pricing reform, IRS tax enforcement, something I'm massively in favor of. As we've talked about here before, you are three times more likely to get audited as a person who makes less than $25,000 than you are if you are a billionaire. Don't tell me how that makes Disgusting. any sense. The current IRS mechanism is to go after poor people, steal their money, and because it's so complicated to go after the super rich, they don't do anything. It's always been total and complete bullshit. And as long as they don't use this money to like go after people's Venmo transactions, I'll be in favor of it. The carried interest loophole also is just outrageous. I, I'm actually very suspect that it will only raise 14 billion, so I have some questions on the details. On the investment side, as I said, 
listen, I mean, as long as it's technology neutral, I really don't care. I think you should throw even more money at these things. And the Affordable Care Act extension uh, credits as well. I mean, we're talking here about old people mostly. Uh, It's seniors who would have been hit with a massive increase in their- uh, And it was going to happen like right before the election too. I mean, it was- was a moral catastrophe. Yeah. It was also an electoral, looming <laughs> electoral catastrophe yes. for the Democrats. So shows you they at least have like three brain cells to rub together to figure out that this mm-hmm. was a bad idea moving forward. Now, the carried interest loophole, this is something I believe Trump claimed he was going to close it. I mean, this he is spoke just out against it, benefits yeah. just uh private equity goal, total giveaway in the tax code for a very small subset of very wealthy Americans. However, it does call into question whether Kirsten Cinema is going to sign on to this. And again, this has got to go through reconciliation. You have to get every single Democrat on board in order to accomplish this. She has said in the past that she does not want to close the mm-hmm. carried interest loophole. So we'll see. And, you know, since it is a small amount of the revenue, is that the thing that they right. toss aside to say, oh, we're negotiating and whatever? Very possible that the private equity ghouls ultimately keep their little goodie bag. Let me tell you, Crystal, I don't think cinema is the biggest obstacle to this. It is going to be Josh Gottheimer and uh, Bob Menendez, who have already come out. And guess everybody what they're so pissed off about. The salt tax. So basically, as we've laid out before, state and local deductions. It used to be that you could deduct all of the taxes that you paid in state and local taxes from your federal income tax burden. Now, uh, under the Trump administration, you were not able to do so. So they raised, they put a cap on it basically at $10,000. Now, removing the cap, which is what New Jersey and California and other high-income tax states want, would effectively be a massive boon only, again, only to millionaires and billionaires in the United States. 90% of the benefit of lifting the salt cap goes to people who make over $1 million per year. So it's kind of a hilarious thing that they are going to the mat right now to try and include the salt cap removal. And Manchin explicitly trashes them (laughs) um, in his long statement that he wrote and says, you know, we're not going to do these tax cut giveaways to red states and blue states in this way. So are they going to get on? How hardcore are they right. about what would no salt, no deal? Will you they know? take the deal over a multimillionaire tax giveaway? Yeah. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. And I then, would and love then to see that. The other question is, yeah. are you going to have, you know, all the progressives on board? I think you likely are um, oh, yeah, because this so is too. a much more significant deal than uh, we hadn't even been following this closely anymore, guys, because frankly, mm-hmm. it was just so pathetic. The negotiations were so frustrating. Yep. There was no, nobody really thought this was going to ultimately come together. Mm-hmm. And what the deal had collapsed to is like, maybe we're going to do the ACA subsidies and the prescription drug pricing reform. And that was basically it. So the fact that now you're getting really significant money towards um, climate priorities and, uh, you know, hiking taxes on the rich in a significant way, I suspect the Congressional Progressive Caucus is going to get on board with this and be, you know, uniform lockstep. So uh, even if you have a few people like Gottheimer, who are want to vote, mm-hmm. you know, against it, you still have at least a few votes you could give away to the, you know, idiots over on the SALT caucus. But the politics of this are also very interesting. And I have to say, a very rare kind of a gangster move from Democrats here. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked they were able they to do this. they kept this thing so close to the vest. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that it didn't leak that they were this far along in negotiations. And the reason why this matters, um, go ahead and put this last piece up on the screen, D5. McConnell and Republicans said they were not going to pass that CHIPS Act that we talked about 
if a reconciliation deal like this was still alive. So they passed chips, and that very day, hours later, Democrats announced this deal. Yep. So they really were able to keep any of the details leaking out, keep the Republicans from getting suspicious at all, because McConnell had said he's going to tank the chips deal if Democrats are going to go forward with a reconciliation deal. And now you have Republicans, because this thing, the CHIPS Act, still has to pass in the House. Mm -hmm. So you have Republicans actually whipping against the CHIPS deal in the House now because they're pissed off about the reconciliation bill, which to me is really stupid. You either support the legislation or you don't. I don't get it. But that's their strategy is basically like, we want to punish you for doing something that, you know, your voters find to be a yeah. priority. Anyway, I don't think that that's going to be successful in the House, but they are signaling their displeasure by doing that. And also, and this is really just horrendous and stupid and wrong, they're also trying to hold up the funding for sufferers from toxic burn pits mm -hmm. is their other thing that they're doing to you know, express their displeasure. They're going to make veterans suffer in order to express their displeasure over this deal with Manchin. Yeah, I think what's also really interesting about, by the way, on the CHIPS Act, I just checked... Um, um, people are saying that the whip count, basically 20 Republicans are still going to vote for it, so it's very likely to pass, There's, even if people yeah, uh, do vote against it. We'll see, though. Uh, it's possible that they turn this into a much bigger thing. Anyway, it's fascinating. Uh, let's see how it plays out. I just want to do the caution. We're still a long way away yes. from this thing becoming law. So in terms of what the next steps are, number one, this still has to go through the parliamentarian. They have to decide every single one on whether it's revenue neutral or not, as in if it balances out, because otherwise it doesn't comport with the rules of uh, reconciliation. Number two, the two parties have to go back and forth in like a quasi-legal argument over every single piece of the bill. That takes a long time. Then we have to do- Is that what they call the bird bath? Is yeah, it's they... called bird bath. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, <laughs> that, welcome to Washington. What a, what a town. Then we also have to do Votorama, which means that during a reconciliation process, Republicans and Democrats get hours and hours on the floor time, and they try to add thousands of amendments to the bill, and they give speeches, and it can take days and days and days. So we don't know when that process is going to start. And as we said, the damn bill's still not out, as in devil's always in the details. It's in the text. There are still many things that could be thrown at this, and it's still... I, I personally think it what maybe seventy percent chance that it becomes law. So that's actually not that high if you consider. Yeah. If you consider there, the there are still many ways they could screw yeah. this up. Just have no doubt about it. Or the yeah. mansion could suddenly once again be like, oh no, right. and now I don't like this part that's of it right. that you wrote into it. Or Kirsten Cinema could be, you know, play the spoiler this time. Who knows? Josh Gottheimer. There's still a lot of um, obstacles to cross here. But um, because this came from Mansion explicitly. And wasn't like, you know, Biden and Schumer mm -hmm. bringing something to Manchin and say, hey, do you like it? And what do you think? That it came directly from Manchin, I think, is giving people a little bit more confidence that it may actually come to pass. And, you know, on the theme of, like, Democrats actually doing a few things here, shockingly, um, they also, the House Dems are also preparing to pass a stock ban. Yeah. Um, that includes members. They can't hold or trade stock, which Great. is quite I mean, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, members, their spouses, and top aides. So something lit a fire under their ass. Again, listen, is it everything that I want? No. Are they at least doing something and trying to deliver for people in some way and thinking strategically about the future of the country? Yeah, they're actually dipping their toe in their, those waters, and it's pretty shocking to behold. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Like I said, a massive victory to get technology neutral and to not, you know, try and close down anything on uh, on gas in the middle of a gas crisis. I think it's 
if I'm amazed that they actually uh, were able to get this. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.